0: I am so, so glad I found a study job. Hunting is the absolute worst.
1: Right? Sometimes I get jealous of people who have family businesses to go into.
0: I don't know, man. Those usually come with a lot of obligations. Like, you can't choose what
1: you study. Or you have to join the Hellfire Club and spend your career trying to fill your famous dad's S&M harnesses.
0: Or you have to marry Gambit.
1: Oh, poor Belladonna. Did she ever end up moving on? I mean, she was dating.
0: That's great. Night Thrasher's brother. What? I'm Jay Editon.
1: And I'm Miles Stokes.
0: And we are here to explain the X-Men.
1: Because it's about time someone did.
0: Welcome to episode 415 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera.
1: And welcome to trench coats, metal boots, and pink breastplates.
0: As we look at the second Gambit miniseries, published in 1997.
1: So, we already had one Gambit miniseries back in the day, it was Thieves' Guild, Assassin's Guild stuff. Miles, Miles,
0: you gotta pronounce them right if you're gonna say them.
1: Ah, sorry, Thieves Guild and Thank Assassin's you. Guild stuff. We met Belladonna, Gambit's kind of wife. We met Tantamati Baptiste, a nice old lady who takes care of him and maybe is magic. The Rogue miniseries dealt with some of the same stuff. And now we have a Gambit miniseries that deals with really not very many of those things. Gambit is the only thief in sight. Sorry, thief in sight.
0: Yeah, um, this miniseries definitely takes Gambit afield from his usual stomping grounds. It's an interesting one. Like, I have, I still have really mixed feelings about it. I'm not sure whether or not I like it. You know,
1: I kind of feel the same way. And I think I came down on the side of liking it. When I first read it, I always read the comics we cover at least twice, once just to read them and then once to, you know, take notes and stuff. The first time, it left me completely cold. And that may just be my taste. Like, a lot of Howard Mackey's work tends to do that. He's the writer of this miniseries. But going through it again, paying more attention to it, I ended up really liking it, especially really liking it for this point in Gambit's chronology.
0: It reminded me a very little bit of, and, and this shocked me when I realized it. it, it reminded me of very little bit of, um, Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown.
1: Okay, tell me more about that, because Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown is like a stone-cold classic.
0: Yeah, Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown is among my absolute favorite X-Comics of all time. This is similar in a couple ways that have nothing to do with quality, and have a lot to do with sort of frenetic scramble through weirdness.
1: That makes a lot of sense, yeah, just going from one location to another, one scene to another, one set of characters who were following to another.
0: And also departure in terms of both genre and style from standard X-Men and superhero gear.
1: You know, I I, I totally buy that, Yeah. So before we talk about what makes this series different, I feel like we have to talk about some of the context. We have to talk about what's been going on with Gambit's life.
0: Alright, so Gambit, Remy Lebeau, is a master thief from the Thieves Guild of New Orleans. Um, he's also a mutant who can charge up small or medium or actually fairly large objects and make them explode a moment later with fancy pink energy.
1: But his real power is somehow being an effective thief in a bright future breastplate and shiny metal boots.
0: Also being understood with one of the worst written phonetic accents ever to grace the pages of an X-Men comic.
1: Worst or best? Worst. Yeah, okay. So recently we, and his former teammates in the X-Men, found out his dark secret.
0: He had, somewhat unwittingly, helped cause the mutant massacre by recruiting a bunch of superpowered murderers, the Marauders, for Mr. Sinister, thus becoming partially responsible for the deaths of hundreds. And after that discovery, via a really bizarre put-together trial featuring Magneto and Eric the Red Drag, um, Rode decided that the thing to do was to leave Gambit and Antarctica to die.
1: That's cold. Eh? Eh? And that brings us to Gambit number one, Falling
0: Star. This is written by Howard Mackey with art by Klaus Janssen, colors by Christy Scheel, and letters by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Klaus Janssen is, like,
1: super famous. He's an extremely prolific inker, but he also did a lot of pencils on Daredevil and some other stuff.
0: Daredevil is definitely the first thing I associate him with. So how would we
1: describe Klaus Janssen's style? Because the art in here is—it's good, but it's also kind of weird.
0: It's very Frank Miller meets John Romita Jr. That is
1: a good way of putting it, yeah. Because, like, the shapes of people are— kind of non-standard people are a little blocky here a little elongated there like i wouldn't call it super realistic but it is very moody
0: yeah it's it's very expressive and it's very dynamic
1: yeah and also this sounds like an insult but it's not it's a little ugly which makes it more realistic because the world is a little ugly. It kind of reminds me of Guy Davis's work on BPRD, where mm-hmm. people aren't super pretty, like they look a little weird, like people do.
0: Yeah, they look and they look more visually interesting. It doesn't have the homogeny that a lot of superhero comics end up with, which is something, again, I really dig about Jansen.
1: Yeah, and I suspect this just wouldn't be to the visual tastes of some people, like, just like Sienkiewicz isn't to the visual tastes of everybody, But it is to my visual tastes.
0: So I want to talk a little bit about the premise of the series and specifically that because of the premise of the series, I actually had to stop and Google when Stardust was published because this is also about a falling star who turns out to be a hot blonde lady. And it turns out they were actually published in the same year in 1997, which is kind of wild.
1: Oh, so it's like an X-Men Doom Patrol thing? Where we don't know which of them ripped off the other because they came out around the same time and were being developed around the
0: same time? Pretty much. And I came up with the complicated theory that this actually migrated over from another universe where Vertigo Comics never existed. And somehow the Stardust pitch got serial numbers added onto it to be pitched to Marvel. And this this is sort of where it ended up filtered through 90s Marvel sensibilities.
1: I mean, I mentioned liking this Gambit miniseries, but, um, Stardust is better. Stardust is definitely better.
0: Oh, much. And weirdly, also features Daredevil. Oh, you're
1: right, because Charlie Cox was in the movie adaptation. Yeah, he's Tristan. Huh. He's so pretty and charming.
0: Indeed. So, the cover also of this issue is some goddamn false advertising, because it says Sinister Redemption on the front in big letters, and Mr. Sinister appears nowhere in this series.
1: Oh, hey, we learned how Sinister works. He's probably just lurking in some bushes slightly off-panel. He's actually all the characters. Sinister is a system.
0: So, anyway, as I mentioned, we start with a falling star, and the fall of the star is witnessed by three people who will all be fairly significant over the course of the story. The first is Father Miguel Bonavita, a priest of an ancient clerical order. He's in the Vatican, and he immediately calls in two of his young acolytes to him to chart the star's exact location, at which point it is quest time. So who who are these acolytes of his?
1: Well, we have Sister Katrina, who we'll be seeing a lot of, and Father Marcello. Uh, Father Marcello, incidentally, reminds me a lot of Rufus Sewell playing the main character of Dark City, or more precisely, of the picture of the priest in the early 2000s New World of Darkness core rulebook that just looked like Rufus Sewell and Dark City. Anyway, yeah, they're his sort of priestly hench people. Uh, They're also in this same very specific clerical order.
0: Yeah, and uh, Father Marcello is a priest. Sister Katrina is a novitiate still.
1: Katrina flies on ahead to Miami, Florida to look for the star, but Father Miguel Bonavita gives Father Marcello, quote,
0: The most sacred relic entrusted to our order.
1: In a small box. He says this will return the fallen, presumably the fallen star, to the proper place in the heavens, but we don't ever see what's in the box. It's never mentioned after this.
0: Yeah, it's just, like, it's not even a MacGuffin, it's just... This box and listeners, it's been a long time since we've had an audience participation thing, but we would love it if you if you popped over to Men dot com and gave us your theories in the comments of this post as to the contents of that box, either in text or visual representations or whatever, because man, sky's the limit. What's in the box? What's in the fucking box? Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's head?
1: I assume we did have some people uh, answer on Twitter, and of course, someone answered that as they as they should have, but yeah. Weird, weird start. So, yeah, that's group of people, one, a bunch of priestly types in the Vatican. There's also Tanta Matti Baptiste. She's a recurring character from Gambit's backstory. She's an older black woman from New Orleans. She's a healer and a mystic. And she immediately has a vision as this star falls of
0: falling stars fallen angels and of a lone thief who seeks to repent for the sins of his past and the final member of our triad is olivier stoker a businessman who is actually the devil and or lucifer it's not very subtle I love this guy's
1: look. He's got long hair, which is very moody in front of his face a lot of the time, but his outfit looks like a well-tailored but uncreative fencing outfit from the SCA. It's just green and blue and not very interesting, and I kind of like that he's a little plain-looking, like, a little odd. I mean, that's not the sort of thing people walk around in typically— but also very plain-looking. Like, his menace really just does exude from his words and his facial expressions and his bearing. That's something Jansen gets really right.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
1: Mackie kind of gets the description of him right as well. Apparently, Stoker...
0: ...presides over a business that exists on the edge of human depravity and immorality. All things lust-filled and violent fall within his domain. Days and nights filled with debauchery are his only distraction. His only satisfaction.
1: Yeah, unlike Shinobi Shaw, Stoker definitely knows what sex is. But, like, sex itself is is way too vanilla, and the stuff he's into is not freaky in, like, a hey-you-do-you you, kind of way, but freaky in a gah way, I assume.
0: And he really wants whatever just fell out of the sky.
1: So the comic is cutting from character to character, watching this falling star. It introduces our whole cast to just show the impact of this one event— and I like that it doesn't show Gambit yet, because one of the big themes of this miniseries is that Gambit gets in way over his head. He's just kind of a guy. He's just sort of randomly caught up in the whole thing.
0: He's not even supposed to be here today.
1: <laughs>
0: Meanwhile in Miami, Gambit, who does finally show up, is drowning his sorrows in his favorite activity, Stealin'.
1: That's right, he is back from Antarctica, but not back with the X-Men. They're still very mad at him. He's on his own. And unlike in X-Men Unlimited number 18 that we covered a couple of episodes ago, this actually is happening. He really is stealing to distract himself from guilt. This is not a hoax, not an imaginary story. I like the first page he shows up on. He's doing, like, the rooftop gargoyle pose looming over the city— But before that, there are these two very small panels that first show one of his hands, and then the other of his hands grabbing the ledge to pull himself up. Again, it just makes it clear, amid this falling star and the freaking devil, he's just a guy. Like, he's got powers, he's very good at what he does, but he's just a person, basically.
0: And the narration, we we get the playing card captions again, what do you think of those?
1: I kind of like them. I kind of I like the feel they give to a Gambit comic. Not just that the captions look like a series of playing cards, complete with a little, like, heart in the corner of the first one on every page, but also that they're sort of falling irregularly. Like, Gambit's got this feeling of, of freedom to him, of a little bit of chaos, of just sort of seeing where life takes him, and the idea of a stack of cards falling across panels I think captures that pretty well.
0: What this really makes me want is a late Starman-era Tony Harris Gambit comic. Holy shit, Tony
1: Harris would be an amazing artist for a Gambit comic.
0: Well, specifically that era of Tony Harris. Yeah,
1: yeah, for real. As we continue to mention Starman in our X-Men podcast whenever we can.
0: It's a very good comic. Oh, it's very good. My first tattoo, yeah. So... Right now, Gambit is in the house of a Mr. Santana, a Cuban gangster, and he is after De Cross of Redemption, which is apparently very valuable. It's a big gold cross hanging on, on the wall of Mr. Santana's um, gallery of stolen artwork, but just as Gambit is stealing it, he gets a vision of Tanta Maddy. And alas, while he's talking to the vision, Mr. Santana's guards surround him.
1: I love it! Like, there's this ghostly image of this older lady just pointing her finger at Gambit and scolding him the whole time, and the gangsters are like, uh, why is this guy talking to himself? But they're just sitting there, confused, pointing guns at him. Like, at one point, while she's scolding Remy, there's this scene of, like, a gangster just poking his gun through the hem of her skirt, not being able to see her. She just does not give a shit about anything, but making it clear that Gambit is misbehaving and there are more important things for him to be doing.
0: Yeah, she insists that he's got the Lord's work to do and needs to stop wasting time, and then threatens to spank him.
1: <laughs> it's so good. I love Tanta Maddie, and we've seen her before. I mean, I think she's been, you know, somewhat religious in the past, but she's like uber religious here. This series inserts a ton of Catholic stuff into uh, Maddie's identity, certainly, but also Gambit's backstory. And that's interesting because I don't think religion's really been much of a part of Gambit's backstory before, has it? Like, not in a major way. It is very New Orleans. It is very New Orleans, sure. It's just not very Remy. But then again, Remy's at a point in his life where redemption is something he's thinking a lot about. Like, he did this horrible thing helping make the mutant massacre happen. He's been abandoned by his friends, his family, essentially, because of it. And he's desperately trying to figure out a way to kind of get back into the good graces of the people he cares about, to be a good person.
0: Plus, we've got Klaus Jensen on art, and we know that he's famous specifically for drawing lapsed Catholics.
1: That is a very good point. I would say, do you think Gambit and Daredevil ever sat down to share a drink? But no, no, I think they would hate each other. Specifically, Daredevil would hate Gambit.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think so. Under most circumstances. But anyway, at this point, a somewhat bewildered Gambit uh, blows a bunch of stuff up and flees out the window. And he's not sure where to go from there, but he sees a huge crowd gathered at the beach and heads down to see what's up and blend into the crowd. He assumes that it's a dead body who's washed up and... This reminds me a little bit of the box scene, because there's this great transition of, you know, there's a bunch of people crowded around on the beach looking at something and you can't see the ba- past them, and then there's a page turn to a full-page splash. And all I could think, because I'm a bad person, was it should be Wilbur Weston from the Merryworth storyline where he got shipwrecked. But it's not.
1: Can you imagine if it was? If the, like, MacGuffin, if Gambit's love interest, uh, an object of redemption in this series was Wilbur fucking Weston from Merryworth? Miles, Wilbur Weston holds no one's redemption? <laughs> Wilbur, you, you kind of suck, dude. I'm sorry. Like, I would say you try, but I don't think you actually do. He tries to do something. Fucking Wilbur Weston.
0: He's so awful. He's just the worst. Nobody likes Wilbur.
1: Well, instead of Wilbur, it's uh, actually a pretty, blonde-haired, naked lady. Uh, she's very, very naked. Of course, this is a comic book in the 90s, so all the, all the bits are covered.
0: I question whether that's enough of a novelty on Miami Beach to draw that large a crowd.
1: Maybe they're impressed by what's covering some of those bits, which is her gigantic goddamn hair! Her hair is so large and impressive. Klaus Janssen does really good big hair. Gambit's hair is really big in this series as well.
0: Oh, maybe that's how you can tell Stoker's a villain, because he's got very, very sort of straight, minimal hair.
1: Oh, yeah, you know, it's like uh, Hairspray said, the taller the hair, the closer to God. Or something along those lines.
0: Oh, and later on with Sybil, like, she's bald? Oh, right, no hair at all, and she's super evil. We'll get to her. Anyway... Anyway, Gambit is immediately smitten. He gives the naked lady his, his coat. And they have an intense moment. She doesn't talk, but he can hear her as music in his head, and she's clearly something celestial and strange.
1: One strange thing is that she never once buttons that coat. She's wearing that open coat, which is just held in place by, like, shadow and geometric luck for half the freaking series. She never closes it. Do they not have buttons in the sky where you come from? Have you ever seen the movie
0: Wings of Desire? No. You should. Huh. I'm just thinking of angels in trench coats now. But, um, anyway, uh, Santana's guards see and are about to kill Gambit when Stoker pulls up and is like, hey, don't kill that guy. Um, just cause. And they they ignore him. They try anyway. And Gambit tells, tells the girl to keep running, at which point she abruptly vanishes
1: and Gambit gets shot a whole bunch by gangsters and falls into the river. Obviously, this is just issue one. There are three more issues. Gambit is going to be okay. And I think we now know why, because in Chris Claremont's very recent Gambit miniseries, we learned that his armor is bright fuchsia in order to focus gunfire at the most bulletproof part. It's kind of like the yellow in Batman's chest logo, hence him not being Swiss cheese at this point.
0: While Stoker threatens everyone with unending torment, um, under the water... Tanta Maddie shows up again and tells Gambit to head for the light as he passes out, which brings us to Gambit number two, Shadow Rise.
1: This is written by Terry Kavanaugh and Howard Mackey, with art once again by Klaus Janson, colors by Christy Scheel, and letters by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Colia Fuchs. So Gambit is just fighting for air, his cheeks are bulging out, and his fingers break the surface— into a gothic Louisiana cemetery, complete with moody saint statues and a great big full moon.
0: Gambit comes out of, of course, a grave with his own name on it, which he addresses.
1: But Remy Lebeau is gone now, long gone. Not quite dead, I suspect, but buried, buried deep. And Gambit ain't the same man at all.
0: Now, he's been here before in nightmares, all the graves are his, he can run but he can't hide, and eventually... A bunch of things reach up from the soil to to grab him, to drag him down. And it's a bunch of human corpse arms and heads, and also randomly a long octopus arm. Yeah, like, did they bury an octopus here? What, What the hell is going on? Are these supposed to be versions of Gambit pulling himself back down? If so, is there an octopus Gambit out there?
1: So my wife actually was thinking that might be the case, that, like, maybe these are different multiversal gambits who have died because they were bad people, and now they're all here, and in one universe, one of them is an octopus, one of them is an octogambit. I mean, there's a, there's a goose Captain Britain these days. Yeah,
0: you know, my other thought that was, that, was that these were all, you know, the people he had wronged, and he had just really wronged an octopus or a kraken at some point.
1: <laughs> Remy, you big jerk. Be nice to octopuses. They're very
0: smart. Maybe he stole its favorite hat.
1: Oh, what the hell? You don't steal an octopus's hat. God, gambit. Octo Eric the Red's gonna put you on trial for that one. Thankfully, back in the real world, Father Marcello was led to the water by that vision of Tantamati that we saw. Apparently she's the Vatican's agent in Miami, and Marcello has given Gambit CPR.
0: And, uh, Gambit wakes up and immediately says, uh...
1: Strong hands. Powerful lungs. Italian. A particularly good year, if I'm not mistaken. Can me without even a brick mint. Damn, Gambit. Fuck yeah, bisexual Gambit. Like, that's the thing. This sort of thing comes up, and you initially might think, oh, he's being homophobically snarky the way people were in the late 90s, but,
0: like, it keeps coming up, and it makes me very happy. Well, and it's literally the first thing he says when he regains consciousness is that he, like, half-consciously flirts with the dude.
1: That's Gambit. I mean, you know, you say that character is what you do when no one's looking. I think, uh, in this case, uh, character is what you do when you first wake up from almost drowning in an octopus graveyard in your head.
0: The octopus is graveyard in our head. (laughs) (laughs) So he promptly falls
1: unconscious again and wakes up to Marcello and also Sister Katrina, the other agent from Father Bonavita. They keep asking where the just fallen is. Gambit's not really sure, so Marcello goes out to beat the streets. And Gambit gradually recovers. He's still super messed up, though. He's shivering and clutching the sheets around him all night as his fever flares and wanes. And there is this genuinely lovely panel of Katrina coming up and just spooning him from behind on the bed protectively while he whimpers. Again, Gambit is just a normal person. He's very human.
0: And later on, Katrina explains that that Maddie is is not just an agent of the Vatican. She's specifically an agent of the Gregory. These are traditionally people who have angels in their bloodline. In this case They are at least a sect across religions who protect, you know, angel lore or are responsible for some kind of intervention on behalf of angels.
1: Gambit knows a lot about all of this, and Katrina is surprised.
0: She asks if he's Catholic, and Gambit responds, I've been a lot of
1: things in my life, Sherry. Enough to know you don't got to be an angel to fall from grace.
0: As for the just fallen, Gambit has somehow derived a name from whatever... Sounds she made inside his head, and that is Aniel, the type of angel whose name means grace of God.
1: It also sounds like Haniel, one of the seven archangels who appears in both the Old and New Testament, and in fact, that's at first what Father Marcello thinks Gambit is saying.
0: Now, we mentioned, we talk about Sister Katrina, she's in plain clothes in this, and at no point is it mentioned that she's a nun, which may or may not be why Gambit is okay with them then fucking. Yeah, yeah,
1: Marcello comes in and sees Katrina's clothes on the bed and is furious, saying like, Dude, she was weeks away from her final vows. How could you seduce her with your giant hair and your missing trench coat?
0: The question is, would, would knowing that she was the nun have stopped Gambit? I feel like it probably wouldn't have. Probably
1: not, but like, he's also got a lot more Catholic baggage in this miniseries than he ever has before, so maybe? Or maybe that would make it more likely. Oh, that's true. I don't know, It depends on how you go. But there's no time to figure that out, because a giant bald lady wearing a leather bikini and a lot of fishnets smashes through the goddamn wall with her zombie gangster friends like they're the newest lineup of X-Factor and picks Katrina up by her neck. That's right, Gambit is saved from an awkward situation by whatever all of this is.
0: If you value the sock pink skin of this wriggling worm! Katrina, I believe it was, you will deliver the habit of Sybil, Sion of Stoker and Lila, Seraph of the Night, Grandson of Raziel and Balak, first of the pit
1: and shaitan and Moloch, last of the Hannah, Great great grandson of Ruder and But before she can finish reciting the evil Silmarillion, Gambit grabs Katrina away from her, and Marcello jumps in front of the zombie gangsters' gunfire to protect them. And there's this great montage of these little panels of Gambit diving away from gunfire and picking up random objects to charge with energy and throw and taking cover. He's just barely keeping out of reach. It is so just frenetic and panicked.
0: So he is able to defeat all of the zombies fairly efficiently, And Sybil sinks back into the shadows and disappears, leaving Katrina to grieve a dying uh, Martello. But as Gambit follows the song in the back of his head to Aniel, still naked under his open coat on the rooftop, Sybil appears again. She was basically letting him go so she could do exactly this.
1: And she sprouts big black bat wings and she speechifies more, demanding that Gambit turn Aniel over to her.
0: Refuse and join the ranks of the shrieking damn without a leg to stand on. Literally.
1: And she screeches like Banshee. It's it's so much fun. Like, she's got this sort of wordplay that she engages in, but it's all just wordplay about murdering people. She's a very focused lady. What she wants to do is kill and be scary.
0: I really enjoy that her dramatic screaming word is literally.
1: I know. Do you literally enjoy it, or do you figuratively enjoy it? Or do you literally enjoy it, but you mean figuratively when you say literally? Yeah, okay. Gambit grabs Aniel like she's luggage, and blasts down through the church roof, back into where they came from, figuring, well, hopefully demons can't actually get in there. Katrina has put on a nun's habit and has lit, like, a thousand candles. But Stoker is there, inside the church, with a very evil-looking dog. Like, super evil! Its collar is so spiky! Strife would be very proud... And that leads us terrifyingly into gambit number three, True Colors.
0: This was written by Terry Kavanaugh and Howard Mackey, penciled by Klaus Janssen, inked by Bill Sinkevich, lettered by Richard Starkings, and CommaCraft.
1: Yes, Sinkevich on inks. God, it really shows. The shadows are so scratchy, and the light is irregular in these, like, semi-concentric rings over those shadows sometimes. Everything is so textured, dark and light, just clawing into each other, which, like, is appropriate, although I don't know that it was deliberate. But I liked Klaus Jansen before. I like him much, much more with Kavich inking his pencils.
0: They're an excellent tonal balance
1: for this series. Oh, they really are. It's so strange. I was not expecting to like this series at all. Like I said, I didn't the first time. But it's one of those comics that we sometimes see in the podcast where the more I look into it, the more I like it. Okay. A lot of that's the art.
0: So we get a brief retcon at the beginning of this issue. Apparently Gambit briefly had Sister Katrina with him when they crashed through the window, but now she has disappeared. And Sybil chases after, but Gambit blasts her and he and Aniel lose her in the nearby swamp. And from there we get an awkward flashback to the showdown with Stoker in the church. And honestly, I'm still trying to parse out the timeline here. Like, it just doesn't make sense.
1: It does kind of read like the writer and the artist weren't quite on the same page, and so some of the dialogue and narration has to do a bit of heavy lifting to make it make sense.
0: And doesn't quite accomplish that. Anyway, Stoker monologues hard, and he introduces all his pals.
1: Olivier Stoker at your service. I'm no mere demon, I assure you. Nor is Cerberus at my side a faithful and ruthless tracker, nor this one on my shoulder, Wormwood, a truthless and hateful creature. But enough about us. So yeah, Stoker's walking this hellhound, this demon dog, but Wormwood is like this tiny, bald shirtless man on his shoulder, like a wrinkly pink parrot. And Wormwood's main job is to just repeat the same vaguely relevant words over and over in an even messier font than than Stoker's. It's... It's kind of silly, actually. Like, it kind of works, though. I mean, there's something about these almost ridiculous creatures being so completely malevolent that kind of makes them more intimidating.
0: Yeah, it's it's the, it's the Mark Hamill's Joker is the scariest Joker principle. Kind of that. Now, Stokra also obviously knows exactly who all of them are, and Sister Katrina tells Remy to get Anielle to Rome, to Father Bonavita, and then sets the church on fire.
1: And then the thing that happens is my favorite thing in the whole series.
0: Olivier's slut-shaming sister Katrina?
1: Oh, no, that's one of my least favorite things. My favorite thing is where, to escape, Gambit charges up a bunch of cards and crams them into the underside of a pew. And then the pew just rockets out the window like a freaking divine, explodey surfboard. And he and Aniel and Katrina escape, although then it turns out Katrina, like, is really captured. And that's one of the parts where the art and the writing don't agree. But... Exploding Divine Surfboard! He surfs out of the flaming church
0: on a pew with explosions coming out of it! It's fairly righteous.
1: So righteous. Which I guess is appropriate in multiple ways. Kind of.
0: So Olivia apparently teleports Sister Cortina back inside, I guess. Um, And then he spends a weirdly long time corrupting her via sort of dilutely foreboding statements and eventually stigmata.
1: I mean, I guess the purpose of this is to show the cost of Gambit continuing to single-mindedly protect Aniel to the exclusion of everything else that's going on. And that's going to be thematically appropriate. Like, we know he's looking for redemption. He stole the freaking cross of redemption. The symbolism is not subtle here. And he's seeing protecting this potentially divine woman, this possible angel, as being a way of achieving that redemption. Which, of course, has its downsides if you do that to the exclusion of everything else.
0: I also love the vague concept that to Gambit, Redemption is something you can steal.
1: Yes, oh, that's a very, very good point, and also very appropriate to Remy. Like, I don't know, we've talked a lot of shit about Gambit over the years. I know some of our listeners are frustrated with Gambit because he's sort of the too-cool-for-school character that shows up in the 90s, 90s. Well, actually before the 90s, 90s, but that's when he got big. But just like Cable, as time goes on, he actually becomes a genuinely interesting character.
0: When he's well-written, he is really, really interesting, really neat. Um, I know the thing that really changed my take on Gambit was a series of years, long after this when he was being written primarily by by female writers, and the difference in how he was portrayed, how he was written as a character, and the extent to which he ceased to be a guy's fantasy of a cool guy who gets the girls, really, really helped me see value in him as a character.
1: Yeah, yeah, the two runs that uh, that are foremost in my mind right now. I'm sure there are other good ones as well. Are uh, Marjorie Liu writing him in the X23 series, yes. mm-hmm, and then Kelly Thompson writing him in like some of the Rogan Gambit series, yeah. and more recently in uh, in Captain Marvel for that matter.
0: So the next thing we see, Gambit and Aniel are on a flight to Paris, and Gambit and the flight attendant hit on each other. And I'm pretty sure there's some majorly mistaken balloon and pointer placement going on on this page.
1: Yeah, this was some of the more confusing flirtation I've seen, and, and I was in college. But either way, it's clear that Aniel just does not care at all. She's just staring blankly out the window. She's very oblivious. She's almost a little inhuman. Lowercase. Yes, Uh, despite the big hair, she is lowercase inhuman, not capital I inhuman, you're right. But I kind of like this, because if Gambit keeps thinking of her as his redemption— that makes sense. Like, he's ineffectively trying to externalize that redemption. Like, to him, it's not that he's objectifying her in a sexual way exactly, but he's objectifying her in the sense that he's turning her into this symbol rather than her getting to be a person. And in a comic that is from Gambit's perspective, that is kind of literal.
0: Yeah. I I definitely like that feature as well. Um, so he is traveling under the name of, of S. Templar, importer and exporter. So that's cute. Yeah. And they they sneak out of the plane to get... Annieelle past customs and they steal a car and head to burn Switzerland to catch a, t- a train to Rome in hopes of not being trailed, which they absolutely are by agents of the seventh circle.
1: Yeah, uh, agents of the seventh circle communicating with something called the cyber fork. I don't know exactly what that was, except that presumably it's a bunch of Satan worshippers who do computer stuff. But 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 I want a cyber fork. It could like I don't know have zeros and ones on a little display on it, and it could be connected to the internet and have Bluetooth for no reason, like my toothbrush.
0: Your toothbrush has Bluetooth?
1: It does, yeah. It connects with an app on my phone, which, like, tries to gamify toothbrushing, and it gives you achievements and stuff. And I would say the main achievement of toothbrushing is not having your teeth fall out.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's definitely one of those things that I sort of think of as its own reward.
1: Right? I mean, that's sad. I'll never say no to achievements.
0: Or teeth. So, on the train... Aniel speaks telepathically to Gambit. She's not a mutant, and she says he and one other are are what make her special, and doesn't elaborate on that before they are boxed in by a massive swarm of shadow spiders. Oh, they're so
1: creepy! It's just like this carpet of creepy little bugs. It's wonderful. I mean, I wouldn't want to see it in real life. But for a scary monster thing, it's great. Because, yeah, they are harbingers of Sybil, who Aniel refers to as the Luciferge.
0: Gambit and Anya escape to the roof, where Sybil is waiting, along with a Cerberus, um, which is established there. There are more than one of, and she unhinges her jaw and shoots a bunch of locusts out of her mouth, and it's it's delightful.
1: Oh yeah, this is one of the scenes where Sinkevich's inks really add to Klaus Janssen's yeah. pencils. She's just so much more terrifying now. Like it looks almost like she's this sheet of skin and muscle just stretched over this weird humanoid, but not human, almost insectoid, jagged body. I also really like the, her, her outfit. Like, that sounds weird, because it's basically just a, a strange leather bikini with a bunch of fishnet, but it's not sexual at all. It just exposes more of that, that wrongness of her physical form, and especially when she opens her mouth way too big, and all those bugs keep coming out. Ah, oh, she's such a good monster. She really is. And we've talked about this before, but, like, you don't see nearly enough monstrous female characters in comics, and, like, she is so that—
0: yeah, genuinely really, really monstrous and scary. And monstrous and scary in ways that aren't tied specifically to femininity.
1: Exactly. And that brings us to Gambit number four, Heaven's Promise, written again by Terry Kavanaugh and Howard Mackey, with art by Klaus Janssen and Bill Kevich, and letters by Richard Starkings and Comicraft.
0: And Gambit's opening narration goes...
1: In the middle of it, as usual. demoness name a sybil in front of me spittin' locusts by the plagueful, and my angel, L. Haniel, behind. If you believe in all that, I mean. Sybil is pretty good at the wordplay herself once again, as the train barrels forward. Fork in the tracks,
0: mortal. Dead (laughs) ahead.
1: She said dead, because they're going to be dead. She kind of reminds me of Ramona's ex, Roxy, from Scott Pilgrim. Just, like, furiously yelling puns and then being really mad if people don't get them.
0: I mean, I don't think we really see how Sybil reacts when people don't get her puns. She spits locusts at them, which is what she would do even if they did get her puns. So she's not really reacting to them not getting them.
1: I mean, I think it makes her sad.
0: And when she's sad, she spits locusts? Yeah, but like, sadly. How does one spit locusts sadly, exactly?
1: Like you spit locusts, but also a single locust tear falls from your eye at the same time. It's kind of hard to tell because of all the, you know, locusts.
0: Is the single locust tear a single tear that is a locust, or a single tear of a locust?
1: Uh, well, that's the thing. It's recursive, so, like, the tear is a locust, but then the locust itself is crying a little tear that is itself a smaller locust, and it just keeps going down into infinity. Whoa. Right? So, uh, yes, uh, the reason that things will happen dead ahead is that Sybil has switched the train tracks switchbox, so the train is going to careen off of some unfinished tracks. So she says, all right, Gambit, uh, you can escape with Aniel, but then you'll let everybody die, who only would have died because you were here and I was going after you, and so you'll be damned and go to hell. Or you can stay and die with everybody, uh, in which case I also win. Or you can give Aniel to me. But, But Sybil, like, Where's the upside? Like, Gambit gives on to LTU, and then one of those other things still happens? This is this is not a very convincing set of options, dude.
0: There is no upside, and she describes it as a win-win-win for herself. But Gambit is, is Gambit, and he's he's good at a good many things, and one of them is throwing stuff very effectively. And So he, he manages to short-circuit the switchbox with a perfectly aimed card, and the track does in fact switch.
1: But it's actually Aniel herself who saves Gambit from both Sybil and the Cerberus. She glows as bright as a star and freaking incinerates them, leaving everything physical or not demonic fully intact, as she just says in Not Exactly Speech Bubbles.
0: I am the light.
1: And man, those sketchy, finely detailed Sienkiewicz inks on her face, oh, it is beautiful.
0: They end up in the sewers under Rome as Gambit strategizes about how to get into the Vatican through what's sure to be a horde of pedestrians, many of whom may well be really demons. Like, he's he's just not sure who to trust anymore.
1: He's getting really paranoid, and he's getting more and more fixated on protecting Aniel. Like, it's clear that he's really not thinking clearly at all at this point.
0: And Aniel is is drained and generally kind of indifferent, but he's, he's still sort of desperately clinging to her and to the idea of her...
1: I can't hardly even hear her song now myself. But if she's really what they say, what I hope, what I hope she can be, to me. And he kisses her. But it's not exactly a non-consensual kiss. Like, she's not into it, but she just doesn't care. She kisses him back, but she just has this blank look on her face. It really is just sad how desperate Gambit is, how much he's projecting everything about himself onto this blank slate of an entity.
0: Unfortunately for both Gambit and Aniel, they are interrupted by another Cerberus, um, accompanied now by, by Stoker.
1: He approaches with a climp-tock, climp-tock. It's kind of creepy.
0: Um, and it's, it's, it's a limp, which he explains.
1: Injuries sustained in a fall. A long fall, I'm afraid. Long ago.
0: It was already really, 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 really obvious that he was Lucifer. Like, this, this was not subtly built up previously. This is not a revelation. Like, there's no reason to be cagey about it at this point.
1: I don't even think he's being cagey. I think he's just toying with Gambit. I think he's just toying with Gambit's, like, increasing knowledge of, of what's going on. There's this, this hateful, fierce smile on his face. Like, is having a great time with this whole thing. He enjoys the suffering and uncertainty he's causing so much.
0: So anyway, Gambit drags Eniel through a manhole to the streets, and under the assumption that anyone could be a demon, he just starts punching random pedestrians. I know! It reminds
1: me of, like, Hunter the Reckoning, that old White Wolf RPG where your characters could see the people that were really demons, but it just looked like you were you were killing people. Um, Or actually kind of reminds me of Rom Space Knight, because he, only he could see with his, like, weird ray gun, which people were really dire wraiths.
0: They look like demons to you? Ha! <laughs> nice. So... Thankfully,
1: uh, Gambit is reassured when a bunch of these people do erupt in demon forms through their clothing, so uh, take a drink, I guess. Maybe a fireball? Ew. It's great, though. Like, again, Gambit is in so over his head. So he mentions that he throws his, as he throws his last card, that it's his ace in the hole, and now he's out of aces. And so he just starts throwing his loose change and his credit cards. Like, I can almost imagine the flop sweat on his forehead if this were a different artist drawing this.
0: Sybil is dead, but... Stoker has a new second-in-command, and it is Katrina, uh, with burned and blackened flesh and big claws and the ashy-shredded remains of her habit.
1: Stoker calls her Black Cat with a K, because of course he does. Like, he's the devil, and he's done horrible things, but he's also just kind of a goofball.
0: That's how it gets it.
1: And as Black Cat grabs the newly-arrived Father Bonavita by the neck, Stoker splains. He says, you know, mortals are really handy because they can interact with both darkness and light. And it becomes clear as he talks that, oh, he was using Gambit this entire time to deliver Aniel to him because he couldn't directly attack or capture her since he's a demon and she is, it would seem, an angel.
0: And he offers Gambit a deal. Katrina is not completely damned. Her soul still exists, and he will put it back repaired give her back if Gambit turns over Aniel.
1: And as this happens, Aniel just starts walking forward to Stoker, and Gambit doesn't stop her. He stays with Katrina. He makes his decision. And Aniel and Stoker hold hands, with Stoker talking about how they're going to create a force to survive the coming Reckoning, uh, presumably some of the angel-demon hybrids that have been hinted at here and there in the series. And then something happens, and this part wasn't clear to me. It almost looks like A bolt of lightning strikes them, or possibly a bolt of divine energy, or maybe they ascend into heaven. It's unclear, but they're gone, and Wormwood, the tiny pink parrot man, uh, because he's on people's shoulders, not because he has a beak or anything, is really upset and screams no. So, I don't know, what do you think happened here, Jay?
0: I assumed they sort of canceled each other out.
1: Okay, that sort of the good and the evil annihilated each other? It
0: was kind of a matter-antimatter situation.
1: Gotcha. Bonavita does seem to imply that it's okay. He says that Stoker missed the real prize, which was a human soul, that maybe Aniel was just this brief emanation of heaven created for this very specific purpose. Like, maybe it was some kind of a trap for Stoker to get him out of the way before he could actually corrupt a soul and do real damage?
0: And Gambit muses on the possibility, but also on his role in the whole situation.
1: Just lost of the trees for De Forest for a while, Dare got so swept up in this epic opera of good and evil, in all the possibilities, even the glorious possibilities that Gambit could actually return a trophy piece to God himself. That I might earn some major redemption points with such a grand gesture. I failed to recognize a simple human soul in trouble. Failed to recognize the true nature of the beast. Until it was almost too late.
0: And finally... Gambit goes to find Tantamati and you know, check back in with her after all the visions of her, and she sort of denies that she ever appeared to him in visions, or at least that he was really seeing her, which leaves that whole can of worms wide open and wriggling.
1: Right, because uh, also like, a vision of Tantamati definitely talked to the Grigori agents, to Marcello and Katrina, but she just says it's not all black and white. And then there's this very odd panel of a close-up of her hand and Gambit's hand reaching out, like with their index fingers fingers extended, very much like that picture of God and Adam from the Sistine Chapel. So like instead of God and Adam, it's Gambit and Tanta Maddie, and then like it transitions to the actual Sistine Chapel where Gambit has gone to see what's up. I that is a decision and I do not know what to make of it.
0: So there's this thing that I think especially young comics writers do, which is try to be really, really profound in, in their panel transitions in particular, and they end up falling kind of flat. And, and Mackie is is not a kid at this point, but this this feels like trying too hard in a way that I associate very specifically with an experience.
1: Yeah, I mean, to uh, Jansen and Sinkovich's credit, it's very clear that that panel is aping that famous painting, but... But weird. But uh, yeah, Gambit is in the Sistine Chapel, and uh, there he sees Katrina. She's not wearing a habit at this point. Uh, She's just wearing civilian clothes, but she is praying. And Gambit thinks about it for a second, about whether he should reconnect with her, because she was the actual person, the person he really did have a connection with in this story. Not Aniel, who was just this, like, heavenly construct in human form— But he decides to uh, let her do her thing and instead goes and returns the stolen cross of redemption, not to the gangster's house, but to the chapel itself. So again, we have this whole series all about redemption, about what it really is, about what Gambit thinks it is, through this very Catholic demon angel lens. You know, I, I feel all right about that.
0: I am very, very curious as to the origins of the story, and specifically whether it started out as a Gambit story. Yeah,
1: that's a a valid question, because it does tie in with where he is in in continuity at this point. He's all about redemption and desperately chasing it, but it wouldn't have to be that. I mean, it could be not even necessarily a superhero character, just some random person who's, you know, done some bad things and wants to be better.
0: Yeah, it almost—it feels like it could be the pilot for— A supernatural noir series.
1: Yeah, but I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, like you were talking about with Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown, this is a non-standard genre for the X-Men, for Gambit, but it's a fun one. It's a fun, different direction to take things.
0: Now, meanwhile, listeners, you've got questions. An anonymous listener on Tumblr would like our thoughts on Warlock as a form of art.
1: Yeah, fair enough. So Warlock, of course, very weird robot teenager who is not always shaped like a human from panel to panel. And I agree. Warlock is like an artistic Rorschach test. You learn a lot about an artist's style and their areas of focus.
0: Yeah, to draw him well, every artist has to pretty much reconceptualize him from the ground up for themselves.
1: Exactly, because Sinkevich's version is just so iconic, and his style is so iconic— So it's always going to be a conscious choice, like, how much of that original design you let into yours and how much you do it yourself. And I feel like you also learn a lot about the artist drawing Warlock from how humanoid versus protean Warlock is. Like, Mm -hmm. is Warlock just a person that looks like an asymmetrical robot guy? Or is he changing shape from panel to panel? Not just for plot reasons, but just because. You kind of learn how much chaos that artist is comfortable with and excited about. Rumbler Fumbler asks on Tumblr, I never get sick of that, what ex-villain would you say Elon Musk is most analogous to?
0: Oh, definitely the Strucker twins.
1: Oh god, you're so right. There's the self-obsession, not being nearly as smart or as cool as you think you are, being kind of without morality, ruining everything you touch, being desperate to prove yourself to your rich dad, being more linked to Nazis than some people
0: realize. And they make things explode. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say
1: either that or maybe the version of Modoc from that robot chicken show on Hulu, but that version of Modok was at least good at some things and was actually funny. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's the frickin' Struckers. I think it's Fenris. And with that...
0: Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Dylan Higgins, filling in for Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com.
1: Special thanks to Max Carlton for cold open assistance.
0: New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at ExplainTheXMen.com.
1: Check out ExplainTheXMen.com for visual companions to every episode.
0: Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of ExplainTheXMen.com. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps.
1: Next week, Excalibur trundles along...
0: ...with Dark Knight of the Banff.